Hear now the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word from Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 through 10 give us the plain and practical applications of Christian love toward one another and the communion of saints. Why does this connect with the rest of the letter? Here Paul is proving, as is his burden in all of his letters, that the doctrine of free justification, of divine sovereignty and election, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all of these doctrines, as glorious as they are, do not lead to lawlessness. As free as our salvation is, it does not give us a license and permit to do evil deeds. That's the burden of this latter part of Galatians, as we also have been looking at in Romans chapter 6, for example, and as we'll see in Romans 12 and following, God willing. Notice here verse 1. If a man be overtaken in a fault... It's not saying if he wallows in his sin and loves his sin. This literally means if you are surprised, attacked, you're ambushed, you're caught unawares, you're overtaken in a fault. Because Christians do not love sin, 
They do not live in it. They do not wallow in it as a filthy sow does in the mud. Now, this word fault means a transgression. They've sidestepped the law of God. They haven't walked on the pathway of God's commandments. They've transgressed. It's a fault. Restore such in one. The apostle enjoins us in the spirit of meekness. Restoration means to put in order, to mend something like a fence that's fallen over that you build again, to repair, to restore to the former condition. How do we do this? He says, in meekness, not in haughtiness, not in a spirit of superiority, but a spirit of gentle friendliness. That's literally what it means to be meek. Strength that accommodates itself to the weakness of the other person. That's what meekness is. So here, God says, to restore them, to put them to rights in this particular way. Considering thyself, lest thou also be be tempted. Here, the Westminster annotations say he toucheth the sore. You know, when you're sore somewhere and somebody touches it. Here's the part that hurts. He touches it. For they commonly are most severe judges who forget their own infirmity. If I forget that I'm a sinner, then I go to the person who's been overcome and say, you idiot, how could you do that? As opposed to recognizing, well, I'm a sinner too. I'm tempted to fall into this very sin. I might actually be overtaken and ambushed as he was. Let me go in meekness. Brother, let me help you out of this. Augustine says, The true sense and feeling of the infirmities we are subject to ourselves make us tender and compassionately affected toward others. There is the sore. We're not aware of our own sins, and therefore we're not easy in helping others. We might crush them when we could actually bear their burden, which is what it says there in verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens. Now, this is a hardship and a burden, an oppressive form of suffering as a large amount the person cannot carry. It's too heavy for this person. Bear the burden of one another. Help them to carry it. Help them to bear that burden. And so, he says, fulfill the law of Christ. That law of Christ Now, this is very likely referring to the new command. You remember, a new command I give you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, so ye shall love one another. Now, this is an old command, isn't it? Didn't God say, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Didn't he instruct the people to do good to those that hated them in the Old Testament? Yes, But what's new about it is that now our Lord Jesus Christ issues the command and he can say, as I have loved you. How is that? Well, he humbled himself. He became obedient even unto the death of the cross. That's how he loved us. And that's how we should love one another. This is the law of Christ. Christ's love added his example to the command of love. And thus became, so to speak, a new commandment. It's the same law, the law of love. The law is fulfilled in one word, Paul says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's what all the Ten Commandments in the second table are about. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
So God requires this of his people. He requires this command of love. But Christ gave us an example. Let us love then as Christ loved. Because, he says, verse 3, if a man think himself to be something, something holy, something great, something special, when he is nothing, verse 3, in the very act in which he esteems himself to be something, he is, in fact, nothing. This is what our pride does. I think I'm something great when I'm actually nothing. We have no right to boast. As Calvin says, we are destitute of every good thing, so that all our glorying is mere vanity, emptiness, pointless. There's no substance to our boasting. And so we note that this obstacle to fulfilling this command is pride. That's why we can't go in a spirit of meekness, is because we're prideful. So if we would truly do good to our, number, we, our neighbor, we must be humbled. We must acknowledge that I am nothing. I have nothing of myself. And if I've been given it by God, I cannot boast as if I hadn't received it. That's what the apostle says. Such a person deceives himself. He lies to himself. This is what our wicked heart does. It tells us we're something great. Are we? No. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? And then God makes him crawl like an animal and eat grass till he has his understanding returned to him and he realizes I am nothing. Everything I have is a gift from God. Notice verse 4. He says, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Wait. Didn't we hear, bear ye one another's burdens in verse 2? And now it says in verse 5, every man shall bear his own burden. It's a different word, actually. In verse 2, it's a burden that weighs you down so that you cannot carry it. In verse 5, it's a burden that you carry as your military pack, your basic gear, your responsibility. In other words, you must carry it. This burden is your soldier's pack, like a cargo ship has its proper load. This is your yoke that God has put upon you. You alone are responsible for it. There are then, I note, personal responsibilities as verse 5, and there are overwhelming sins as verse 2. We must not confuse what is our personal burden as if it were too much for us. This is the sin that the devil wants us to commit. My pack that I have to bear, the yoke that God puts upon me. Oh, it's too much. I can't handle it. It's too heavy for me. I cannot do this. If it's your duty assigned to you by God, called in his providence to do it, don't kick at it and say it's too much. Do not excuse yourself from your duty. Nor, on the other hand, if you are overwhelmed in a sin, Satan says, well, just... Say it's yours alone. Don't ask for any help. Don't accept any help. Just keep it to yourself. Don't, t- don't confess that sin. Don't ask for counsel. Don't ask for assistance. That's what Satan wants us to do. There the overwhelming burden is like, oh, well, that's my pack. I have to bear it alone. You see how Satan wants to confuse these two. He wants to confuse us. Then note verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Here, him who is taught. 
the one under teaching, the one being catechized, in other words. Let him keep on communicating, he says, to the one who catechizes him. Keep on making common or sharing with him. In all good things, in other words, those things that are your worldly goods. Jesus said the same thing. The laborer is worthy of his hire. If you ask someone to teach you, you should pay them. That's what he's saying. You ought to give him something. Now, Paul was an exception to this rule, you recall, with the Corinthians, because they might see him as a mercenary and he could provide for himself. He said, I'm not taking payment from you because you'll become confused and think I'm like these false apostles, so I'm not taking payment. But the ordinary rule is, if you are taught, you should communicate. There is the office of teacher or catechizer. This is part of what we call the eldership in the New Testament. Then there are those who are taught, the congregation, those who receive the instruction or the catechesis. You must support your ministers. This is not, hey, hey, I need to be paid. This is just a biblical fact. You must pay your ministers. God built this into the Levitical law. But do you note, even before the Levitical law, even before God said through Moses, hey, you should give 10% to all your ministers. Do you know what the saints did? They paid tithes. Abraham, when he goes and rescues his nephew Lot, what does he do with the spoils? I will give a tithe to this minister of God called Melchizedek. I will pay him. He serves God. He's the minister of the Most High God. I'll pay him. God builds it into the Levitical law. When you have our father Jacob goes off and he's going to prosper in Laban's work, what does he promise to do before he leaves? A tithe of everything God gives me, I will build a house for the service of my God at Bethel. It's built into the instinct of nature. The old heathens had similar customs. We must give a portion of our worldly goods to our priesthood or what? We won't have any ministry. We won't have any service of God. There will be no more temples. If they could do that for their false gods, how much more for the true God? And here he says, you owe it to them. It is theirs. Communicate all good things because you might be lying to yourself, he says. Be not deceived. This actually is a prohibition in the present imperative. What that means is it assumes you're doing something and you need to stop it. That's what he's saying. Stop being deceived. You Galatians are deceiving yourselves because you think that you can mock God by not paying your ministers. You think you can go without paying them, but you're deceived, he says. Now, this word mocked is very interesting. It comes from the word for your nose. You ever seen a person sneer? Hmm. I don't have to listen to you. That's mocking. Sneering. Turning up your nose. Treating with contempt. They hear God's word and they say, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. The labor is worthy of his hire, but not me. This rule doesn't apply to me. They sneer at God. And then God reminds them, verse 7 again, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Does this sound familiar? You remember in Malachi? They said, well, you, you've been robbing me, God said to the people. When, when, when do we rob you, God? He said, in tithes and offerings. And then he said something very interesting. 
He said, if you tithe, just wait. I will open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing on you if you give to my ministers. If you take care of those that I've appointed to serve you, I'll provide for your needs, no problem. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. What are you doing with that money, Paul is asking. Do you pay your gospel laborers? Or do you treat God with contempt and say, as ministers, I don't have to worry about them. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Do you want to reap a harvest of corruption? This is literally a carcass rotting and sending off the scent and stench of death. You ever smelled roadkill in the middle of summer when it's hot and it's corrupt and it comes forth with a smell that you don't want to smell? Or a skunk gets hit by the side of the road and you smell the carcass. Corruption. That's what you reap when you seek your own glory. Remember the holy things that they were to offer up to God? They couldn't even work with a bullock that they devoted to God. Here God says, you keep that back for yourself that you owe? What's that going to turn into? It's going to rot. It's going to stink. It's going to be corrupt. This is a proverbial statement. You will reap corruption. Whatsoever a man soweth that, how shall he also reap? And then he says, verse 10, not just the specific duty to those who teach you, but the duty we owe to all of one another. And he says this, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Our benevolence is, in fact, to be universal, but it's to be ranked. Did you notice that? Especially means this is your first priority. If you get your first priority done, you can move on to priority number two. Now, tribalism says, let us only do good to those who are of our tribe. Globalism says, let us only do good to those who are not of our tribe. The Bible says, let us do good unto all, but especially to those of the household of faith. That's our tribe, by the way. So the Bible recognizes we have a tribe, but that tribe is not genetic. That tribe is of faith, the household of faith, not the household of Abraham as far as his genes and seed are concerned, but the household of Abraham as far as Jews and Gentiles who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul then gives a contrast of character in verses 11 through 15. Paul himself versus his adversaries, he gives then an epilogue and a benediction. He refers to a fair show in the flesh, you prosopeo, you is good or well, and prosopos is your face. These people wanted a good face, a good showing in the, fle- in the flesh, he says. They didn't actually keep the law, did they? They were sinners, just like everyone else. But they wanted you to keep circumcision, the mark that you'll be saved by works. And then they rejoiced in that, but they themselves were hypocrites. They didn't keep all the commandments of God. They didn't obey his moral laws. They rejoiced in a mere external form. They trusted in the means of grace. Worse, they trusted in the means that men had devised instead of the means of grace. This is the Pharisaic 
spirit. I have the means of grace. They're not good enough. Let me devise something else, the doctrines and commandments of men, by which I make a fair showing, a good face toward the world. This is in quite sharp contrast with the Apostle Paul. What will he boast in? External rites and forms? No. God forbid, may it never be, he says, that I boast except in one thing. Save this one thing. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'll boast in. Because by means of the body of Jesus crucified for me upon the cross, I have been crucified to this world and all of its face systems, all of its hypocrisies, all of its self-righteousness. I've been crucified to that. And that has been crucified unto me, he says. I'm no longer bound and held by this world system. Then notice he repeats from chapter 5 a very similar phrase. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now this word avail means to have power, to prevail, to be a legal institution that has meaning or validity or to be in force. What is it among believers that has force or power? Well, I was circumcised. I'm a Jew. I keep all the laws. Does that have any force with Christians? No. What about Well, I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jew like you are. I'm freed from the Mosaic ceremonial law. I've never received circumcision. I have my own things. Does that avail with God? Does that have any power with him? Is that a valid institution with God? No. It profits nothing. What is it then that avails with God? A new creature, he says. Being born again renewed in the image of God, putting off the old man. Notice here, not the form or the face, but the substance is what avails. A new creature. Quite a contrast with the Judaizers. Then verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, that is the rule of boasting in the cross of Christ alone, if you walk by that rule and not by the formalist rule of external rites, trusting in the means of grace, trusting in the doctrines and commandments of men. If you walk according to this rule, peace, he says, blessings, mercy, and goodness. Christianity is a rule. This word means a tape measure, a canon. We talk about canon laws. God has a canon in Scripture. The Bible itself is a canon or rule, but there are doctrinal rules contained within it. Don't boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Not your faith, not your sincerity, not your works, not circumcision, not baptism. Nothing but Jesus and Him crucified and the recreation of the image of God. The substance of the gospel. That is an apostolic canon. Let us hold fast to this apostolic rule. Let us glory in the cross of Christ alone, through whom we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. Now listen, some people say that the Israel of God are those in the flesh, the circumcision, 
Those descended from Abraham and they can trace their genealogy supposedly back to Abraham. They boast in that as the Israel of God. What does Paul say as the Israel of God? Circumcision is nothing. Being a Jew means nothing. Being a Gentile means nothing. What is it that means something? Regeneration. Christ crucified. Justification and sanctification. That's what matters. That's what means something. And then note the benediction in light of this. Don't trouble me, he says. I have the marks of the Lord Jesus. I've been persecuted. I'm not avoiding it like these false teachers. Now, brethren... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.